Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Podcast, I'm going to do, <laughs> do a jumping jack beforehand. <laughs> like, this is how I get excited. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, if this is the first time that you are tuning with us, this is my Twitter, at Focus Compound. There's me. There's Jeff. Uh, be sure to follow me on Twitter. This is the best place to get all the information, all the content that we put out on the internet. Uh, we hope that you are definitely getting a lot out of it. You know, I was thinking about this the other day because we just passed our two-year anniversary. Okay. I've learned a lot from the podcast. I know a lot of people listening have learned a lot. Have you learned a lot? Uh, yeah. Or is this just kind of something that you just, you know, do? So you're just really explaining, you know, stuff that goes... No, through. I learn a lot from the podcast. I learn a lot from the podcast. Yeah. Uh, one. W- you know, they say teaching is a great way of learning, but yeah. we're not. Yeah, no, I mean, sounds we, like an we talk about things true. and we get an idea for like how... You get a better idea for how you really feel about something uh, when you have to kind of explain your thing yeah. about it. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these things are stuff that we'd be doing in the fund and the manager accounts, but we wouldn't necessarily be talking about, you know, how we calculate whatever we do or... Um, and then, of course, the people that we talk to. I framed this picture, guys, for Jeff and myself <laughs> to your anniversary. Thank you so much for following along. If this is the first time you're following us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs video up, leave us a rating review on the podcast uh, that helps spread the word. And we are going to continue to educate. And obviously, um, that helps push out our content. So we're super thankful for that. This is FocusCompounding.com. You can join the Gannon Gazette for free. Enter in your email right here. And if you are a premium member, um, and we're actually simplifying the website right now. Uh, you could get access to stocks A to Z, mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of different stocks on here. And we're actually going to be pulling some today because yeah. we're going to be doing just um, you know talking about intrinsic value mm-hmm. and how we think about valuing companies. And we're going to be using QuickFS.net, and we're going to pull some companies from here. But before we do that, if you are going to be in Omaha this year, Jeff and I plan to go. If you're a prospective investor and would like to uh, potentially meet up with us to learn a little bit more about our money management services, uh, email me, andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Again, that is andrew at focusedcompounding.com. All righty. So what's a good stock we should pull uh, to put in quick? Why don't we start with OTCM? Okay. We've talked about this before. OTCM um, is a pretty easy one to do an intrinsic value calculation for. Okay. Uh, mathematically, it's easy. Okay. So, um, although maybe some, it may be controversial, but it's easy. Um, <laughs> so the reason, so people ask things like, what's the right PE ratio for a stock or something? And the answer is, um, you, it's uh, not that simple. Um, a company like OTCM, if it grows, can have a very, very high PE ratio because it doesn't, as you'll see here in the quick FS uh, page, uh, really need to retain earnings. So if we just look, we can see that the like what was the lowest year's return on invested capital? Uh, let's see. Well, excluding any negative. Any negative. Yeah. Um, 
83%. Okay. Like. Yep. Yeah. So that just gives you an idea um, that, you know, it just, obviously they can't compound at that rate. Mm-hmm. So it's just a question of how much they grow. And then that growth is basically free. And the reason for that is they have float. Um, this is a business that has like subscription uh, revenue that they get up front. Um, and so, and it's a service business. It's not investing in inventory and stuff like that. So it's a question of just how much it grows. So it's sort of like you're getting a perpetual coupon and then you have to assess the riskiness of it and all that sort of thing. But you basically just say, okay, how much is my yield now and how much is it growing? So let's look at that. Uh, the stock is at 3350 or whatever it says mm-hmm. in this last close. Yep. Um, or we could do it off of enterprise value and things like that if we'd rather. Enterprise value is a little... Let's not use enterprise value because they have float. So let's instead use... Um, well, we could just use enterprise value because that's the thing they have here. So enterprise value to free cash flow is 16.6, which means that um, your earnings yield basically on a free cash flow basis is going to be um, in the range of like 5 to 6%. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So you have like a 5 to 6% coupon. So you could compare that to like a bond yielding 5 or 6%. But the difference is that a bond yielding 5 or 6% is never going to... Um, uh, grow that coupon Go over up time short, for you. Yeah. Whereas this stock will. And so let's look at like the um, growth in it. We don't have the Kager, but we do have like revenue growth that you can just look at in terms of how much it's gone up each year. Mm-hmm. And so from 2009, 2010, 8%, uh, I'm a round up, a round down, 9%, 8%, 1%, um, 18%, 19%, 2%, 7%, 9%. And here's the part that's going to be controversial. So basically, the correct earnings yield that you should be willing to pay, the correct free cash flow yield you should be willing to pay for this, is going to be your discount rate, which we'll assume so... Buffett came out with a letter recently, and he said, showed that from 1965 to today, the S&P 500, which uses the yards to, to compare Berkshire's compound against, compounded at 10% a year when you include dividends. Yep. So we're going to use that as our discount rate, okay. Okay, as our hurdle that we have to clear. So you take that 10% number, and then you subtract from it the growth that it has, and that will give you the free cash flow number that you cannot pay, the free cash flow yield that you cannot pay more than if you want to buy the stock, so the intrinsic value that way. So in theory, this creates a problem. If the company is growing more than 10% a year and has infinite returns on capital, we can't value it. And that's just basically true. Uh We just can't. And that's not just a mathematical thing either. I think that while it is true that it's a mathematical uh, fact that we can't value it, it, it's also just that it's too hard. The the answer is it would be incredibly valuable. You'd be willing to pay a very, very um, high price uh, versus any sort of earnings or something today for something that's growing at more than 10% a year while not requiring any retention of earnings. Okay, so could we, let's unpack this, okay? Okay. So you said 10% discount, right? Mm -hmm. Right, the hurdle, right? Right. And that you're thinking about that is as your opportunity cost. Yeah. Right. And that's P 500, including dividends, long-term average. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you said um, that you want to take that number and subtract the growth. Yes. So let's say you use, I don't know, let's just use what? 8%. Okay. Or, or 9%, whatever you want to use. All right. So it's going to become hard if you use numbers that are that close to 10. Okay. So the, here's what's going to happen. If we use 6%, let's say, okay. which is maybe a more realistic number or whatever. If we use 6% as the number that we feel confident in, and of course they've done more than that in the past, but let's say we use 6% as that number, then we're saying that 10% minus 6% is 4%. Yes. We can pay 25 times free cash flow. Got it. So you okay. flip it on its head. Yeah. yeah. Now 7% might be more likely, mm-hmm. in which case we could pay 33 times right? Um, because that's 10 minus seven is three and, uh, we're flipping it. So we're getting 33. Mm -hmm. Um, the, as I said, as you get close to 10, you have the problem that you're going to get 50 times free cash flow at, at, um, at 8% growth. Mm -hmm. And at 9% growth, you're going to have it suggested that you should pay a hundred times free cash flow. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Well, 
Yes and no. I wouldn't pay that much. But yes, it's correct that if something can grow as fast as the market or faster while retaining no um, uh, earnings, it, if that's true, then you get a very, very high number. Um, and so you, you're, not, you're basically going to get numbers that say you should buy the stock at any price almost. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not right. There's some price at which you shouldn't buy it, and you have to do these projections far out into the future. Uh, I think the big issue, of course, is how far out you project the growth. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't disagree if someone's saying, well, might the stock grow, this company grow 8 9 10% a year um, for the next few years? Yes, but what we're thinking more is like, what do we think it'll grow for 10 years um, that's kind of our minimum thinking, but even beyond that 20 or 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Because so if you, it might really be able to grow at like, say, let's say 5% a year for yeah. all that time. If it does, then, then you have a very simple number, which is 10 minus 5% is five and then 20 times free cash flow. So it'll be worth 20 times free cash flow. In reality, it's probably worth somewhat more than 20 times free cash flow because it'll grow faster than 5% for a while. And then eventually it'll grow as slow as 5%, mm-hmm. right? But it's that overall number. So the theoretical part of what we're talking about is it's a number that's very, very stable for a very long time. Yeah. A lot of people, when they do a DCF, do this thing where they say it's going to grow a lot now. And then it's going to trickle off. And, and then in five years, yeah. we've had that down. So it'll grow 20% a year for the next five years, then 10% for the five years after that. And then they find like a terminal one where they mm-hmm. say it'll grow at like 2% or something. That makes the math very easy. But it doesn't work for like those sorts of things Berkshire invests in because he likes to buy things that will still be growing at nice rates in 10, 20, 30 years, mm. you know? And so that has a big impact on the, usually the terminal rates that you use for a great company are too low that people put in their DCFs. Yeah. So, um, but the problem is of course, if you use the rates for things that are more, uh, upfront, uh, the next few years, then you're going to get values that don't even allow you to figure out what the company is worth. The answer here is this is worth a very high multiple of free cash flow. Mm-hmm. So it also depends on the durability and things like that. But you know, this would be a, we're using an example of a company that it would be hard to think of a company that deserves a higher free cash flow multiple than something like OTC. Now, why is that? Because it grows most every year, mm-hmm. and it doesn't require any retained capital to grow. Generates float. Yeah, as you can tell I me, mean, if there's ever a negative. Uh, invest return invested capital. That's something that should definitely uh, pique your interest. Right. So, like an EV to sales of six times is incredibly high, but this is a company that's averaged a twenty five percent free cash flow margin and growth that's faster than the market mm-hmm. and, and all those sorts of things. So, it would be a high number. I think we talked on a podcast before that the number I would pick is probably thirty three times. Mm-hmm. If I was being honest, not like conservative. We don't buy stocks on the basis of an honest appraisal. But if someone came to me and said we have to we have a dispute between two parties on how to price OTC market stock, it's not. It, imagine it's not publicly traded and yeah. they came to me and they said we need to transfer from one person to the other what's the right price to use mm-hmm. 33 times free cash flow mm-hmm. I would say. interesting okay let's pull another one from uh, let's use Omnicom you're familiar okay. with that company yes this is going to be the opposite <laughs> so Omnicom Group mm-hmm. 16.7 billion dollar company currently trading 12.5 times earnings on an EV to free cash flow basis it's about 10 Revenue has gone from 12.5 billion in 2010 to 14.9 billion in 2019. That's a 10-year CAGR of 2.5%. Free cash flow is right around 1%. 10-year CAGR and EPS is 9%. So here's the opposite thing happening, which is a very similar business to the one we just looked at. It generates a huge amount of free cash flow relative to reported earnings. It generates float. Um, ad agencies usually pay um, for the. Uh, they usually receive payment. Uh, a few weeks before they end up paying for what they um, uh, their billings, so that means that they're going to have a large amount of free cash flow relative to um, revenue. 
that you see. Mm-hmm. Their revenue is a small fraction of their billings. So, um, so just like anything else, it's a timing thing. And that means that they have a constant supply of float when they're growing. Now, um, the float grows with it. But the problem here, as you can see, is where's the growth? There hasn't been growth. Now, there has been EPS growth, right? Mm-hmm. So if we look down at the EPS growth line, you can see growth there, or yeah. you could until very recently, mm-hmm. um, by buying back their own stock, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the problem that we have here. So the returns on capital for the business itself without acquiring anything are very, very high, like the actual incremental investment, because it doesn't require any investment. So it's practically infinite in the sort of organic growth of an ad agency. But organic growth is down to like nothing. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to get a number that's like 33 times free cash flow here. Why? Because it's not going to grow that fast. So let's do the same sort of applying the idea that we had before. Sure. Let's take 10% because that's what we, you know, the market has done over the last 50 some years. Yeah. And um, let's subtract out what we think the growth will be. Well, their biggest growth. And what's number, growth? So everyone will ask that. What's growth? Growth in revenue? Growth in EPS? Growth I in use, cash earnings? From I would cash use flow? growth in revenue here. Now, um, why? Because I think that that's the best estimate. You could use growth in revenue, gross profit, free cash flow, any of those things. The it's the least cyclical number that we're going to have here. We're measuring over the entire period. Um, we could estimate it through different ways by looking at the the revenue growth of what it's been before. Um, I, I like it better than any other thing that we're going to use. We have to avoid using per share numbers because this company buys back stock. So that has to be avoided. And then we don't want to get um, changes in the margin affecting our um, numbers. A lot of people want to use earnings growth or something like that or dividend growth. A lot of people use dividend growth because there's a model that's based yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. But that's not a good approach because although it might be showing you the dividend growth, it's not showing you the number that's most likely to show how their capacity to grow dividends in the future. Yeah. Right. Same thing here. If their earnings grow a lot because they recovered from a cyclical bottom, that isn't really uh, that helpful now going forward. So like, for instance, what was their mar- operating margin in 2010? Um, in 2010, it was 11.6%. And what is it now? 13.9, percent right. We don't want to count that part of it. We just don't want to. So that's why earnings have grown faster than some other things. Mm-hmm. We don't want to count the um, margin expansion. So what we have here, I think, is probably using something like revenue growth. I think that, honestly, something like Omnicom is not likely to grow faster than inflation. Um, organically. It may acquire some things and stuff, and but I just don't see the ad market growing much faster than that. Okay. So it, the ad market overall might grow as fast as like GDP. That's more likely, but those things could go to things like Facebook and Google and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And less so through ad agencies. And Okay, so we'll take the 10% hurdle rate. Right. All right. And, you and then I say like inflation, 2 or 3%. Okay. So we have 2.5% as the 10-year CAGR on revenue. Mm-hmm. So I say use that. Um, now there's currency stuff and all sorts of things when you look at a company like this, but let's use that two to three percent. Okay. So um, two to three percent would mean we take ten minus two or ten minus three means seven to eight percent. Yeah. So we would need a seven to eight percent free cash flow yield. Okay. Right? And a seven to eight percent free cash flow yield is going to get us a number of around like twelve, thirteen. That number twelve to fourteen something in that times range. EV uh, free cash times flow. free cash flow. Yeah. Right. So similar to a PE. So and actually, what's the stock's PE now? It's twelve and a half. Yeah. Uh, EV to free cash flow is lower than that Mm -hmm. um you can use something like ev to sales is probably better because you just use the long-term free cash flow margin or something like that so we're getting a number that isn't that different than um where the stock is today that's but by the way that's using a 10 percent discount rate yeah if the s&p 500 doesn't do 10 percent a year for the next 10 years then omnicom would probably outperform it so Mm -hmm. you always have to be careful about the discount rate you're using we're using a discount rate based on the last 50 years 
of returns, the market's more expensive now. And when it really comes to handicapping a stock like mm -hmm. this, well, I mean, what do you, you're essentially, you're betting that the market's pricing it incorrectly. Right. And there can be changes based on your estimates of things. I wrote a report on Omnicom a few years back, and I would have estimated the intrinsic value of the company as being higher than I am now. Um, because I believe that the long-term growth rate is lower now than it was. Mm -hmm. I don't believe the profitability is different or things like that. I just believe that the growth rate will be lower than I thought it would be. So I thought it was a number that would be higher than what I'm now estimating. Mm -hmm. So you can do that same math of like 10 minus 2 to 3%. I would have been saying 10 minus 3 to 4% or whatever, you yeah, know, whatever sure. it was before. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What about, I'm going to put like a disclaimer when I tweet this out, be like warning, there were no DCFs used in this video and <laughs> podcast. Um, psychomedics. Okay. So we can use psychomedics. So this is another free cash flow one though. Mm -hmm. So, um, so would you rather do like more of a bank one? Well, I just feel, no, I mean we could do something that's asset based or whatever, yeah, yeah. or something that isn't, um, uh, growing. Psychomax has the same problem again, or problem, it's a good thing that all these companies have, that they have very high returns on capital while having um, uh, a lot of free cash flow uh, conversion, high free cash flow conversion. So basically these depend a lot on growth. That's what you learn from doing this. When you have a very, very high return on retained earnings, the uh, your estimate for how much value you think the stock has is incredibly weighted to how much growth you think it's capable of. Uh -huh. So that's the problem here. If you think, so they're going to lose some of their Brazil business and stuff or all their Brazil business, we can factor that in. But basically, if you think that the company is going to grow um, revenue as fast as they did the last 10 years, then it's cheap, right? So the last 10 years, they grew 6 to 7% a year. But we're assuming that that's not the case um, because a lot of that was from Brazil. So if we assume that it's like more closer to zero, one, two percent, then yeah. again, we're getting the same thing where we have, need free cash flow multiples of close to 10 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it, it's basically that same number that I'm saying over and over again with these, which is you value these things like perpetual bonds when they're um, based on free cash flow that way. That's different from things that need a lot of assets. So maybe we pick something that needs a lot of assets like... Um, uh, I mean, stock, just go to the stocks A to Z page and let's see. Um, so uh, let's see what people. Um, okay, Stella, Stella Jones. Yeah, let's do Stella Jones. That's fine. Because Stella Jones is a good example of a company that will grow a lot, but has some capital issues mm -hmm. where it, it can't earn a very, very high return on capital. All right, Stella Jones currently trading 16 times earnings, 42 times EV to free cash flow. 1.4 times uh, EV to sales, 10-year CAGR of 18.6%, going from 411 million in 2009 to 2.1 billion in 2018. What's significant about that is the 10-year CAGR on assets is about 18% as well. Yeah. Uh, and then EPS has grown about 13% uh, for a 10-year CAGR. Okay, so this is the part that might surprise people, which is this growth is so much higher than the growth we saw in the other companies we looked at, Yeah, right? It's higher than OTC markets and all that, and yet I'm going to say it doesn't deserve as high a multiple of things like earnings and stuff, so why not? Because it needs to retain more capital to do it. So if we look on their return on equity, this company uses debt, um, so this, that's part of it. Yeah. So if we use return on equity... Um, we're seeing that the 10-year median is 17%. So the issue that comes up here is that the difference between our discount rate, our hurdle rate, whatever you want to call it, of 10% and the 17% ROE is meaningful. They're creating value when they reinvest, mm. but it isn't infinite or anything like that. So um, what you're going to have happening here is a question of how much they retain and how much they grow is not going to matter the growth isn't going to matter quite as much to the value of this company as it did in the other cases that we gave. So 
Um, I would use something like earnings here, to be honest. Um, I, I analyze this company, and I think the free cash flow thing it could be kind of confusing. The company isn't run to generate free cash flow. It's run to keep increasing its assets all the time. A lot of it goes into inventory of um, uh, timber that's going to be used, that's going to be made into um, uh, utility Railroad poles tracks and stuff. Like oh, the, yeah, 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 and tracks. Those, yeah, yeah, for yeah. rail tracks and utility poles. And so it has to season for like, you know, the better part of a year. So there's a lot of wood just sitting around at, that this company owns. And that's why the returns are the way that they are. Um, so let's look at the long-term growth in things like uh, EPS, mm-hmm. okay? Right, so what has been the long-term growth in EPS? Uh, it's been 13%. Okay, operating margin is similar in the beginning and end? Yep, uh, no. Operating margin was actually 10.5 in 2009, and it's 9.7, and okay. so similar. Yeah. So there's been a change in taxes because this company, although Canadian, does a lot of uh, U.S. business. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I would say that's pretty stable overall that we're seeing. So we can use the historical growth in earnings per share, but you have to understand that if we do that, um, that's all that you're getting is that growth, right? So the question is you have a PE ratio, and then you can do this pretty simply, probably. I would say you take the PE ratio, right? It's like 16 or something. Mm -hmm. And you ask, what is a normal PE ratio this company should trade at when I sell it at some future point in whenever? So we could say that's 10 years from now, 20 years, 30 years. You can do the math whenever you want. You have to pick a normal PE. So like based on the history in the US and stuff, let's call that 15. Mm -hmm. So that's a round number and it's close to what the average has been. So if we take like 15, what you're saying is how much can they grow earnings per share and then what will the PE be at the end of this period? Mm-hmm. And the end of the period PE is going to be a little bit lower than now. So, But over an infinitely long holding period, that won't really matter. So your return is going to be very, very close to the earnings per share growth rate. So you basically just have to calculate earnings per share growth here and then take that number and compare it to your 10% hurdle rate, right? Mm-hmm. If that number is going to be below your hurdle rate, then you're going to end up with an intrinsic value that's below um, what we were just talking about here. Okay, the so they, now, let's say it's 13%. It's above, right, so it's 13%. So then you have a value that comes from the fact that you're going to have something that's compounding at 3% a year going mm. forward more than what your discount rate is yeah. here, right? So in essence, it deserves to trade at higher than a 15 PE, mm-hmm. okay? So it's going to deserve to trade at higher than a 15 PE by probably about um, one-third, so probably about... 20 times, mm-hmm. I would guess. So about 20 times earnings is probably the right price for this. If you believe in that earnings per share thing, this is hard because they're using debt. I think it's okay that they use debt, but they're using debt and um, the company's gotten bigger over time. So I'm not sure you can project the same earnings per share growth in the future, mm-hmm. but look, revenue, assets, all that stuff grew even faster than earnings per share. Yeah. So it's very possible. So you have a number that is greater than 10%. Now notice if we had an earnings per share number, this is what might surprise people. If we had an earnings per share growth number that was below 10%, that actually would mean that the PE that it deserves could be lower than 15 if all that it's doing is reinvesting everything in the business. So you can actually have a pretty high growth rate. Like you could be growing 8% a year, your business, you know? But if your returns are low, then that, that kind of growth doesn't really create a lot of value. Yeah, sure. Right? Okay. Let's see. Cheesecake. All right. We talked about cheesecake recently, mm-hmm. so listeners can... I went to Cheesecake Factory on Friday... Okay. And there was an hour wait. And I said, oh. no, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Cheesecake Factory. Uh, currently trained 20 times earnings. EV free cash flow eight times. 10-year uh, median returns. 18% on return equity. 20% on return invested capital. 10-year uh, Kager in revenue. About 4% going from $1.6 billion in 2010 to 2 
$1.3 billion in 2019. EPS has grown at around, rounding up uh, 12% over the past 10 years. So what we would use here is enterprise value to sales or you know, market cap to sales, whatever we want to use. Okay, why is and that? Because the sales for a restaurant are going to be somewhat cyclical. The margins are going to be somewhat cyclical. More cyclical in terms of margins than in terms of revenue because of uh, economies of scale and diseconomies of scale at the site level in particular. And they're going to be very big for cheesecake, right? So a small decrease in their sales has a big impact because they have very high fixed costs. You've mm. been to a cheesecake factory, you know, it's a very big place. Yep. It has lots of, the, you know, there's lots of employees that there are going to be relatively fixed. Some of it isn't that fixed that you can shift around, but there's other stuff that you can't. So rent, you can't. Um, so what we'll look at then is the um, average, uh, the 10-year median um, EBIT margin probably. So 7.6%. Right. So 7.6% is what we would want to use pre-tax instead of what it is most recently. Now, this is where things get complicated because some people are going to say, well, we should use the more recent numbers, which are poor. And uh, the truth is, if that's the case, then you maybe, if you think they're always going to be getting worse, then just like avoid the business. We can't do an intrinsic value estimate. But if you think they're going to mean revert, that's how we can do an intrinsic value estimate. Someone's going to be like, no, you could, you could put it in your DCF and you could have it go up and, and <laughs> discount it. And so we're going to use the, uh, so we're going to use the, I'm going to get crucified on, on, on Twitter. <laughs> so we're going to use an operating margin like that of like seven and a half percent. And then it's going to be, um, we take about, 0.8 times that roughly because that's roughly what the tax rate is now uh, is the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. So um, it would be 0.79. So um, you get that number and then you get a number which actually is very close to what their free cash flow margin has been historically, which is 6.5%. Okay, That's very convenient because what we're going to say is that their growth in revenue is like 3.5% or something, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if their growth in revenue has been like 3.5% the last 10 years, and we believe they can still grow 3 to 4% a year, I don't know that we do believe that, and we believe the free cash flow margin is 6.5% or so, mm-hmm. then you have 6 to 7% of turning sales into free cash flow. Yeah. And remember, that's conservative a little bit because there's been a tax change, but let's put that aside. So 6 to 7% free cash flow and 3 to 4% in terms of revenue or something, it's very easy to see the correct intrinsic value is about one-time sales. Okay. Right? The reason why you can tell it's about one-time sales is we add up the free cash flow number and the growth number, which will be our growth in free cash flow. Um, they're different here, right? So you see revenue grew more than free cash flow, yep. but that's because margins uh, declined during that period. So um, what you're going to get is that same thing. We talked about a hurdle of 10%. And this is the problem with the DCFs, right? Should we use 8% instead? What do we think it is going forward? We probably don't think the S&P is going to return 10% a year, but that's what we're using. Mm-hmm. So all of our numbers are going to change very sure. meaningfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we could, it could be a change of 25% in the intrinsic value of what we calculate mm-hmm. based on whether we use something like a 10% number or something closer to an 8% number. Mm-hmm. It literally is uh, going to make moves as big as that. So it's going to make a difference between if I say something's worth one-time sales or 1.2 to 1.3 times sales. Mm-hmm. So it's about one-time sales for this if it grows at 3 to 4% a year and has a free cash flow yield of 6 to 7% a year because that hits right on at at sales of one times, that's hitting our uh, hurdle rate of 10%. But if I lowered it to 8%, then you see that that would raise the price we should pay. The intrinsic value would go up to like 1.2 to 1.3 times um, sales. Mm -hmm. So it's very sensitive to that. If some people are using like um, 6% or something that you could use, because there are estimates that the S&P 500 will only return 6% year, you know, because it's expensive. Well, if you use that, think about how far that pushes things up. You're now getting things where you're over one and a half times sales. You know, so it's extreme. Mm-hmm. Let's do one more. Okay. Let's do, let's see, see if any, let's go up. 
Do you want to do like an asset one? Sure. Why don't we do Greenberg Partners? Good old Dallas, Texas. All right. Greenberg so Partners. Greenberg Partners, I wrote up on the website, I think. Did I write it up or did you write it up? No, you wrote it up. Okay. This was like one of the first companies we talked about. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. go ahead. Current trading 11 times earnings, EV to free cash flow, negative 19%, uh, 10-year CAGR on revenue, 13%, going from $416 million in 2009 to $624 million in 2018. They build homes in Dallas, Atlanta. I think they're in Florida now. I haven't looked at it in okay. a while. But, yeah, the two original big markets for them were Dallas and Atlanta. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Yeah. And literally probably even more around where we are right now than it, uh, Dallas generally. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, the easiest way to do this one, which we don't see on QuickFS, the number, but is the looking at the land inventory. Uh-huh. So basically, we should price the stock based on how much it's growing its land. Um, the reason for that being the best approach probably is... That a home builder, valuing a home builder on free cash flow, I think, is misleading because we know with a company like this, or we think we know, they're not going to pay out dividends. Uh They're going to put it back into land. And land is an asset that can be sold and stuff, just like a bond portfolio or or stocks or whatever. And yes, it's less liquid and whatever, but we can think of it that same way that we would look at an insurer or a bank or something. And so we can think of it like an investment portfolio. And so how much is it growing each year is an indication of how much. Um, the the company's really earning basically. Now we have to try to adjust that for like fair market value. Yep. In reality, the way that a home builder carries the land means that if the land goes down in value, they might mark it down, but if it goes up, they won't mark it up. And so if they buy land early on, like they bought some land in the um, right at the time of the crisis, for a few years, it was underestimating the value of the company. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is anymore at all, but it was for a few years because land values had gone up by so much in between like 2009 and 2011. The way that they were coming for it sold it, it had been a lot more expensive, right? Mm-hmm. So it would make sense to value it versus the land inventory, which again has a component of leverage to it, just like when we talked about Stella Jones, which as a shareholder, you have to take into account. You're buying the stock, so you have to take into account in terms of your intrinsic value estimate. Now, there's a risk to it, but you have to take into account that it's using leverage and you're getting the benefit or the harm from that. And so I would use the uh, land inventory and then how much it's growing. Um, so you could see a number here like, again, we'd use something like a 10% number, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're using something like a 10% number, what people would normally do is, let's say we were using price to book, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're using price to book instead of the price to the uh, land inventory adjusted for certain market value stuff, um, what we would do is we would take that number and say, okay, well, how much do they, are they growing book each year, basically? And then compare that to our 10% hurdle rate, mm-hmm. right? Or it could be an 8% hurdle or 6%, like we said, and that has a big effect on it. So that would cause a big expansion or contraction in the price to book ratio that we would value the company at depending on the discount rate that we're using. Yeah. And so let's say that it grows book value by 10% a year all the time and the market value and, and the discount rate we're using is 10%. Then you can see right there we'd value at a price to book of one would be correct. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the intrinsic value. However, you would see that if we use it 8%, and maybe 8% is the more correct number, that value that you see of 1.2, that's actually closer to the intrinsic value. So that discount rate difference is like, so people might obsess about, well, is um, Greenberg Partners trading at a di- slight discount to book, a slight yeah. premium, whatever. Actually, whether you think the market's going to return 10% a year going forward or 8% is enough to move it like 25% in terms of uh, versus book value. Mm-hmm. So while we obsess on things like price to book, it really depends on your discount rate. In theory, things should have a higher price to book um, if they're still growing like 10% a year on that book value as the discount rate that you're using goes down. 
Um, and it has a very big impact, like I said. So like moving discount rate from 10 to 6 or something has a huge impact to the point that you then say you should justify a really big mm-hmm. um, premium to book value. Now, a lot of the times when we value companies, mm-hmm. we think about like what the business can grow over the next 10 years, right? So mm-hmm. you kind of do it a little bit differently. I mean, you may be doing this in your head and thinking about different valuations, mm-hmm. but the way you actually apply it sometimes in real life could be different than the way that you're describing right. it right now. So I think the biggest difference is that I don't care what the intrinsic value of the business is. I don't think it's my job to have to figure out what the intrinsic value actually is. I think I just have to establish a number that is, uh, I feel very certain it, the intrinsic value is greater than, and then that number just has to be a meaningful amount less than the share price. Okay. So basically all I have to do is like say take OTC markets or something, right? So what I'm going to do with that is not actually try to get an estimate of what the value of the stock is. What I'm trying to do is okay, given today's price, what would justify this? And So you're doing like a reverse DCF. Yeah, like I'm head. saying how certain am I that they can grow at least 6% a year for the next 10 years? See, we could do 6%. We could do different numbers. 6% is convenient for this one because you see the PE. Mm-hmm. So the PE is like 26 or something. So we could do something like 6%, which means I don't count the cash as anything. Yeah. So I'm just putting the float, the cash from the float, I'm putting that aside. So I'm not using EV, I'm using market value. And then I'm saying, well, if you can grow 6% a year for the next 10 years, then... It, this stock will do as well or better than the market. And then I try to use a high discount rate. So I you think flip it on a high rate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas see if the market was very cheap now, then I would say I need more than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I flip it to say how low a bar do I have to clear? Mm-hmm. And then you just want a very low bar to clear. And sometimes it's incredibly low. I mean, we bought a stock um, in the last year where the, the hurdle over 10 years, honestly, was just that it does not have a decline in earnings. Mm-hmm. It was justified with no earnings growth for 10 years. You would get a better than 10% return in the stock. But that obviously means the P was like five or six or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. Mm. Crazy cheap. Yeah. Cool. Because the expansion from a P of like five to 15 or something over time would get you plenty of return. Then how does the company buying back stock affect it? It would depend based on whether your intrinsic value is greater than or less than uh, the price that you're paying. So we just went over a bunch of companies. Yeah. Uh, Omnicom buying back stock has maybe some slight positive value right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Cheesecake Factory buying back stock maybe has more of a positive value. And then other things that we looked at, like Greenberg Partners, wouldn't really matter. Um, I don't think we looked at anything that was incredibly, uh, that looked to me to be incredibly overvalued. None mm-hmm. of the things that we looked at seemed incredibly overvalued. But if a company was incredibly overvalued, then you know, that you'd have a problem that way. Mm-hmm. I did a thing where I talked about Berkshire and stuff, and I would say that Berkshire paying out a dividend doesn't make much of a difference now. Um, just because I don't think Buffett can outperform given the asset base and stuff that he has now that much versus like what you could do with the money. Mm-hmm. But Berkshire buying back its own stock may make a lot of sense at times because the stock can still get very cheap. Um, so like a buyback could have a ton of value in a way that a dividend can't anymore. Cool. Well, that was great, Jeff. Good job. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. We are going to be in Omaha uh, during the Berkshire meeting, uh, which is the week of May 2nd. So if you are a prospective investor, like to learn a little bit more about our fund or the separately managed accounts, email me at andrewatfocuscompound.com. We'd love to meet up in person, maybe grab a cup of coffee. Um, so definitely reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompounding.com. And this is the first time you are tuning in with me and Jeff. Uh, check out all of our work. Go to YouTube. We have 170 plus podcasts out there now, which is pretty crazy. 
Uh, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. And if you like free content, join the Gannon Gazette on FocusCompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself here today, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompound.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.